When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. Some updates on some long-running sagas this week as Meghan and Harry's court papers reappear. And then also we have an interview later on with Nigel Corson, the the, uh, author of a new book, Prince Andrew, Epstein and the Palace. I am your Pod Save the Queen host, Anne Griffa, and I am joined to start with by my good friend, Daily Mirror Royal Editor, Russell Myers, whose hair is still resplendent. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Are you getting down the hairdressers on Saturday when we're allowed to? I'm not, and I should have booked actually. I mean, I'm caught between actually liking it like this because it's just so ridiculous, or uh, or actually being sensible and getting it cut. But then I checked on the barber's website, and they're obviously doing all different bookings now. You have to book. You can't just walk in. You have to wear a mask. You're going to have to. They're only letting like three people in the barbers at a time, and uh, and I've missed all the all the appointments. So it's probably oh, going to well. be about another four months before I can get it cut. So well, we I look shall... like I look like Jesus by, by the time we get out. We shall continue to enjoy it. So the, the royal family they have carried on kind of a busy series of calls and engagements, and we saw those lovely pictures uh, of Kate doing her garden on her visit to the Nook Children's Hospice, which kind of followed. On from the conversation that we were having in last week's episodes around um, the Children's Hospice Week and the involvement there and that lovely picture of her having planted planted a sunflower but you know the royal family largely seemed to be in a rhythm of doing doing the the new, the new world the new normal and how things are but there is there are still some things that are bubbling away and periodically reappear so we've had the latest... well, what are they I mean I, I what are they I well as I, I alluded guess. to before so there's there is the Meghan and Harry well situation at large but particularly I think the court case that is yes I mean how will that unfold diplomatic as ever and the situation at last I mean if you were you know paying attention paying attention to most of the front pages in the UK and certainly it's been lighting up uh, Twitter and lots of websites all around the world. These um, new documents that Meghan has submitted to the High Court in London as part of her case against uh, associated newspapers, uh, specifically Mail on Sunday and Mail Online over these five articles that we've obviously spoken about before containing uh, interviews with her father using the letter that she sent him. Now, the the big uh, thing to emerge yesterday um, is obviously these new claims and allegations that Megan has to do with her relationship with the with the royal family. I'm just reading off the Daily Mail's headline today, which doesn't pull any punches. It's Megan Palace hung, hung me out to dry, and I think that you know that is the the feeling of of this that um, it's becoming all very very personal indeed. And this those aren't her words, though, are we? No, I indeed. Mean, we well, clarify, I mean... that is what they have read between the lines. Is I think the word that she used was unsupported is that right absolutely um, yeah she said that she was unsupported by the institution of the royal family when she was pregnant i mean there's so many sort of different claims coming out of this uh these new submissions um and i think that's probably the most damaging one i think when we you, you know you speak when we think back to the the queen's statements when uh, when they were preparing to leave the royal family and I always thought they were very very heartfelt spoken before about how the, the term family was used eight times uh, the Queen said how impressed she'd been with Meghan how she'd sort of welcomed her into the family I think we'd, we'd seen that when they were uh, on their first ever engagement together in, 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 Chesh- in Chester um, and I just th- think well I, 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 I know from speaking to people at the palace that the the uh, 
the, the senior oils are going to be absolutely devastated by this. This is a massive, massive uh, power play by Meghan and her lawyers. Um, and it seems that though they're, they're, she's, uh, she's particularly unhappy of the way that she was treated and certainly the way that she was not allowed to, uh, to respond publicly to, um, to certain articles that were appearing in certain newspapers to do with her, her father speaking out. Um, and this, this saga is going to run and run. I mean, the, 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 a, a date for the trial hasn't even been set yet. And uh, when that comes along, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to be absolutely explosive. And I think it would be... You know, it would be easier to read it as she felt unsupported in her wish to sort of really crack down and push back at these newspapers who were, she felt, and you know, it's obviously she's, bring, she's bringing the case against them because she feels they've intruded into her privacy and have, have shared things that they should not be sharing. But the interview that she gave when she was in Africa, where she, you know, that it was nice, it was nice of you to ask me how I am because not many people ask me that. That kind of gives off an impression of actually it's not just related to that it's a wider feeling of not being supported yeah i mean listen i I can only tell you what what i've been told and 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 i would suggest respectfully suggest that that just is not true now i I mean it's megan's putting it in court documents and will no doubt potentially um but well no doubt be prepared to say this in court if it's in these submissions that she, she that's her feeling towards the royal family but um you know any anyone that i've spoken to has has said that you know megan was liked by the family she was welcomed within it there's you know Tr- charles was particularly fond of her certainly the boys had had their issues kate and megan are completely different people and you know it was kind of had to be a business relationship this fab four maybe we all got well so we all did get far too carried away with it but and maybe they were just too different to never get on. Um, and should we sort of force them to get on? I'm, I'm still not sure. But anyone, anyone else in the seniors, you know, the senior members of the family, re- was very, very fond of her. And I think that they will be absolutely uh, dismayed at these headlines this morning. Um, and 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 certainly all all the details that are coming out uh, in these uh, in these court documents. And there's a there's a mention of sort of Beatrice and Eugenie and how they're using their titles for their work and things as well. Well, so this somehow. is the juxtaposition, right? So you've got on the one hand, Megan is comparing herself to minor royals such as Beatrice and Eugenie, and uh, and it's uh, it's Prince Michael of Kent. So she's saying that they are members of the royal family who obviously carry out a number of duties um, and but are also working members of the royal family and they are allowed to earn their own money. However, on the other hand, she then claims through her lawyers in these submissions that the wedding, um, well, her wedding to Harry, benefited the British taxpayer by a billion pounds. Now, this has been largely refuted today by uh, industry experts, by consumer groups to say, you know, obviously there was a massive, massive upturn. The wedding was watched around the world. The um, the impact on tourism is is largely unquantifiable, but. Um, uh, I, I think, again, it's, it's undeniable that anyone in Windsor or watching it on the TV would have seen the crowds, all the hotels were booked up, and people were spending loads of money during that weekend or, or indeed the week. However, putting a figure on it, like a billion pounds, seems frankly ludicrous. And I think that on the one hand, you're saying that I am like these minor royals. I wasn't necessarily a senior member of the working family, then I should have been able to do what I wanted, when I wanted, i.e. pursue commercial ventures. And then the other side, you're saying, I'm the big superstar. Um, and that, that is certainly my reading of it. It's a power play and it's, I'm the big superstar. I was, um, you know, not only benefiting the royal family by my sort of, uh, my, my, me being there, but I'm also benefiting the British taxpayer to the tune of a billion pounds. And that is obviously because of the level of criticism that was labelled at them uh, to do with Frogmore Cottage and the wedding and the security detail. Um, and I just think we, we're we getting away. Um, we're getting away. Sorry, the postman's here. I'm just sort of waving to him. How exciting. <laughs> Is it something for your barbecue? We're live. We're live, yeah. Um, but I think, anyway, we, I just think we, we're getting away from the very fact of what this case is about. And this case is about a letter 
that she wrote to her father that she says was a private matter. She never expected it to be in the public domain. And that's why she is specifically suing Associated Newspapers, because she is claiming that it breached her copyright and her right to privacy. However, the, muddy, the, the waters are further muddied by the fact that she has revealed um, the names of the five friends that spoke to People magazine, which was the Mail on Sunday claim, uh, as certainly Thomas claimed, that were, that was the reason that he spoke to the newspaper because of this article in People magazine that five close friends of Meghan say they spoke out without her knowledge because they had seen what such a, she was in such a state and that she was distressed and that they wanted to set the record straight on her behalf. So, um, fascinating detail about these five friends, because Meghan is saying that it was without her knowledge, uh, even though she had told two of them, one of them certainly expected, uh, suspected to be Jessica Mulroney, and we've all seen the headlines about their relationship recently, whether that is, you know, complete, completely... Um, kicked into the long grass who knows but uh i think that's fascinating that, that megan is claiming she did not know that these friends were going to speak to a major magazine that would have been picked up all around the world uh, and i just can't see if you know megan was in the institution she was told to so no comment the, K the kensington palace machine had been saying never complain never explain no comment to you know a, a, a whole raft of stories and that they went sort of essentially behind her back and spoke without her permission i mean that is quite a bold move if your friend certainly doesn't know about it and you could ruin a friendship over that so um you know just more more fascinating details uh to come i think and the, and the trial will be absolutely sensational you can bet on that Absolutely. And so far, the, the names of these friends are A, B, C, D and E, because in the public documents, they've been redacted. So they're, they're just referred to by their by their code names. And, you know, I guess it's it's to be seen what does eventually come out in court. Because so many different strands seem to be being pulled into this, which aren't necessarily directly to do with there's a letter. She wrote it to her dad it got published you know it's quite sort of i don't know like it's an all-round personal defense well, essentially is. of this this is who i am and this is why i'm i deserve some respect and care yeah. essentially yeah so i suppose it's it, again it's uh it's it's one opportunity isn't it without actually sitting down with oprah or writing your own book it's one massive opportunity that everybody is going to sit up and take notice of um However, the more strands you bring into it, let's say, you know, I was told I wasn't allowed to say anything, so therefore my friend spoke on my behalf, but I didn't know about it, although I had spoken to two of them about the letter, and they did know, and they knew the actual context of it. But also by saying that, you know, the, the palace, while bringing the palace machine to this, saying they had said, I couldn't say anything. And that is essentially what she was saying, that she was uh, silenced from, from responding. Now, this just isn't true, because anyone sort of in my position or covers the, the, the royal family to, to, to the extent of being a royal correspondent, um, or, or even journalist, really. I mean, speaking to the palace about certain allegations, um, the, the palace will, will frequently um, give, a, give, a, give a steer or a line or steer people away or, you know, it's not always just a blanket no comment. And I think that by trying to make it a black and white issue is will develop further problems because unfortunately these issues are grey and uh, there's yeah, they're, they're a lot of blurred lines um, and you know I just I just feel very very sort of uncomfortable and, and maybe if it was this one case of Megan saying you know I'm a fiercely private person I never wanted that letter to be in the public domain um, but you but then you, again you've also got a, you know there's a We've seen reports of Omid Scobie, who's um, one of Megan's, uh, one of the authors on this uh, new book, Finding Freedom. He he was on Good Morning America recently, saying Megan wrote the wrote the letter with the knowledge that it could one day be in the public domain. And I think that these issues are um, are potentially um, a, you know a problem a problem for her because when it, when it comes to trial, all this detail is going to come out, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be more unsavoury. I think. 
No, it's interesting. And it's worth remembering as well that kind of the first round of appeals, the submissions that were made by Megan's side, a lot of it was lost and kind of dismissed as a bit unstructured or irrelevant or not, you know, she she kind of lost that first round of the battle. And then the the thing that when you're talking about her friends and that interview with People magazine, it reminded me of, I don't know whether you were one of the talking heads on this TV show, um, Russell, because I didn't actually watch it. It was Diana in her own words but when I, on Channel 5 at the weekend, but when I was reading the preview for it, they were saying about how clever she could be and how she dealt with things, and that um, while she didn't speak to the author of the biography, tapes in which she was speaking made sure they got to him. So, the, you know, the kind of the semantics of being able to say, well, I didn't speak to him, but actually she had spoken to his dictaphone, <laughs> essentially. Of course, and, the, and this is the issue with uh, you know, it's a certain things being leaked in other publications around the world. I mean, there's, there's, there's been numerous, whether it's People or Mail Online or you know, any other publication that's had certain stories. They all, everyone has their own sources, do they? And whether they come from directly from the horse's mouth or um, a, a source close to that person, um, you know, there's, there's, just a, there's just quite a lot of mess here, I think. And I think with their, especially because, you know, the, as, you, as you rightly say, the High Court has already thrown out Megan's claims that the you know the press were waging this malicious campaign against her, uh, and also the, he threw out the allegations that um, the journalist was stirring up this this rift between her and her father, and sort of by digging into this notion that she was being attacked constantly is getting further and further away from the actual case. And I think that when you look at the judge's comments um, in the initial hearing, when he was frankly saying this is ludicrous that you're even bringing this to me. I think that they are in real danger of, um, of, of, of potentially making it too large and, may, and, and really getting away from the actual point of what it was supposed to be that we've, um, about the letter. So, yeah, lots more to follow there. And if you're interested in the Royals' previous encounters with the law, then you may want to check out an episode from earlier this year when I caught up with Carol Watson, a former colleague who is now a media law lecturer, among other things. Um, at, um, Do you know what? I will, I will just, uh, I will just say, sorry, sorry, I will just say, though, I think that what, what my overriding feeling of all of this is how sad it is because you've got Harry or, you know, going from being the most popular member of the royal family to now being entrenched in this. And can you imagine what the Queen thinks of reading these headlines this morning? Because no doubt they'll see all the front pages. They might not sort of read every coffin spit inside, but they'll see all the front pages. And you've got like, you know, headlines like Blame of Thrones, Palace hung me out, hung me out to dry. And I think that they they will not only feel very, very sad for him, but we're sad for what's why this is all being played out. And and also, if Megan did feel like that then I think that there will be a lot of questions internally to answer. And the fact that she felt that she couldn't ask Harry or go to Harry, or maybe Harry didn't feel that he could go to his, uh, his grandmother, his brother, his, his father. And I, and I just think it's, it's, it's a really, really sad situation. And maybe even more of this will, will, will come out if, if and when she takes the stand. So I'm just very, very intrigued. And, um, and we'll, see, we'll see where it ends up. I guess it's worth recognising, you know, you mentioned that Kate and Megan are very different people and, you know, di different people in the same situation need different things. So sometimes, you know, you have to look at an individual and maybe the firm with set ways of doing things isn't always best place to respond well, to someone who's again, different. You know, someone, you know, someone said to me today, uh, yesterday, it was, it's, it's just a, is it a lack of respect? Is it this, this, she feels so under pressure that, this is her only option, she feels, that she was in this, uh, the institution that she didn't, you know, she fell in love with someone, she wanted to, she saw it as an avenue to, to, to do a, a whole raft of, of great things. And then once you're in it, once you're in the belly of the beast, you just, she, she absolutely freaked out and thought this wasn't for her. But um, I think there's just an awful lot of questions to it for everyone. Did she not go into it with her eyes open? I mean, I mean that seems hard to believe because that she that she that she didn't know what she was getting into because everyone would 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 know that it would be you know not a completely easy ride and you're not going to get to do what you want all the time um, and that and the payoff of that is living in 
you know, a multi-million pound abode, flying on private jets or living in going, to, you know, going to frolicking palaces and stuff for your, for your holidays with the Queen. So it swings and roundabout, surely, isn't it? But but then, I don't you know. know, what you see on the outside as a person who's not part of it, whether that's the royal family or some job that you're applying for in a particular company and you think, oh, yes, it'll be great to work here. And then you arrive and actually it's totally different to how you think it is. So who knows? But I'm sure we'll be finding out more. And I must just I should correct ourselves. It wasn't unsupported. It was unprotected. That was the kind of the real. Unprotected, of the word, indeed. I think yeah. that, was my, that was my fault. So I do apologise for that one. Um, but all of, all of these um, court papers coming out kind of rather overshadowed the sudden appearance of prince harry yesterday in the for a nice video for the diana awards being held virtually obviously because we're all still in lockdown but he's still not got any art or anything on his walls he's still he's still in the cupboard yeah poor harry i mean yeah getting away from all the you know the headlines um and the, the you know the, the mudslinging from the court case. This was very important. It was the uh, the Diana Award to us yesterday, and Harry was appear, appearing via video uh, message on behalf of himself and his brother, and speaking up to all the sort of um, incredible young winners and about uh, celebrating them essentially. But he was his message was was very very powerful. He was saying that there's um, you know talking about institutionalised racism. And it has no place in our society. However, it's still endemic. And, and these are issues that are obviously being spoken about. Uh, widely reported that Harry and Meghan are going to sort of diversify their efforts um, because of the delay in setting up their own Archwell non-profit charity thing. Um, and then they've got more time. And obviously the Black Lives Matter movement has really taken off around the world uh, after George Floyd's death and all the headlines that is getting. So that will hopefully be a good vehicle for them to really concentrate their efforts on. Um, but also, I think we're going to see Harry, you know, doing doing a lot more of this and, and, and referencing Meghan's words because, you know, she, she did that uh, speech after George Floyd's death. It's got some really, really powerful messages in it. And, um, and he obviously f feels uh, very, very strongly about it. Um, you know, allegations of the reasons as to why his wife is so upset in certain quarters of, of treatments in the press as well will obviously have uh, something to do with both of their feelings. So um, I think that's, uh, again, watch this space because I think we're going to see Harry and Meghan do a lot more in this arena. It's always still cute when newlyweds refer to, I still consider them newlyweds, it's still only two years ago. Um, my wife, anytime you reference my wife, do you still get excited when you say my wife, Russell? No, I've, I've got, I did. And I'd like, I wear two, do it two and a half years. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm, no, I better keep my voice down. She's in the next room, but I won't say I'm over it, but I, I don't know. I just, I don't know whether it's, it, I, I think it's a bit naff sometimes when he says it. I, I mean, my wife, her name's Megan and we all know who she is. And it was, you know, she'd be, you know, I think supporting her in that way and talking about her. It's, uh, she always says my husband as well, but I don't know, maybe it's just me. I would say... Yeah, I'll bet Gigi James has got an interpretation, but um, uh, well, of course, of I'm, course, I'm a, yeah. I'm a body lang language expert in the Thai signs, but so maybe it's one of those. But he he did also refer to my brother as well, which was also quite sort of a nice moment. So there we go. Well, um, we need to get her on then. You can you can ask her about uh, whether I should be for referring. I think we're going to have to get Dan to to massively edit this piece because if my if my wife listens to me saying that I'm a uh, I'm not all too enthralled <laughs> by saying it anymore. I feel, uh, it's I'll, I'll be fine. Da Daniel yeah. will not be doing that. <laughs> you, you will accept the consequences of your actions, yeah, Mr. Ryan. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's not what Dan is here for. Um, <laughs> one other thing worth mentioning on Harry and Meghan before we move on to other things is around the Facebook discussion that's going on. Like, I think it's interesting that they've sort of come out on this because, you know, they don't currently have any public social media in which they're engaging whether they've probably got some secret profiles as um with their secret code names to actually hang out with their real friends but you know the sussex royal instagram account is quiet they wouldn't but they never had a facebook page um and you know i just think it's interesting that this is i know it's like it's wasn't more, instagram it's owned about, by facebook well exactly though. this is the problem anyway I go mean, back to the beginning and explain sorry, sorry, what's going sorry, on yeah. for me russell okay okay so uh i mean 
I mean, you you, you saw something. Up. They are joining joining uh, a cause, essentially a campaign, which is trying to get um, advertisers to boycott Facebook during the month of July. Now, this will obviously hit. Facebook massively in the pocket uh, because they rely on advertising. Of course, they make billions and billions and billions of dollars. Lots of them are paying tax on, but that's another matter. Um, and Harry and Meghan have joined this campaign to to essentially to to get awareness about their their platform and and, and about that hate speech is is often um, di- distributed on it. And and I think that they had obviously suffered quite a lot. With um, with hate speech on their own Instagram page, so it's it's very very interesting that they're moving in these sort of circles. I think we can see the sort of buds of of what Archwell will become, whether that's uh, you know with the Black Lives Matter movement or certainly um, you know inclusive charities and, and and also talking about about hate speech, which can be absolutely ruinous um, on social media for, for for an awful lot of people. And it's interesting the way they're doing it because, you know, William and Kate are approaching that social media space and the fact that it needs to be a better place through the prism of mental health, I think, whereas Harry and Meghan's engagement with this cause does have a more sort of political lobbying tone to it, I feel. Well, certainly they wouldn't have been able to do this, right, if they were members of the royal family. I don't think so. Well, it's... I don't know. Saying that, because... I mean, certainly William was very vocal um, this year, last last year, when he was speaking to the BBC and he was speaking about uh, trolling and, you know, it was keeping kids safe online. And this was a big, big push for him and, and talking about internet safety for children and, and how that it is Google, Facebook, it is their role to... Uh, be the guardians of, of of our children, especially when they're online, because parents can't, you know, it can't possibly keep uh, track of everything their children are, are looking online. However, I think that the, the key difference here is the uh, the campaign is a stop hate for profit campaign. It is directly targeting companies and it is lobbying companies. Um, and these firms have, 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 have stepped up to the plate. Unilever, Dove, Honda, Ben & Jerry, they've all pulled the plug from the advertising. So you're making a commercial uh, campaign as well to hit a commercial enterprise in their pocket so they do change their mind over um, a campaign that you're running. And, and, and that is, I think, what they wouldn't have necessarily been able to do if they were in their royal roles. And they've kind of put a little foot forward on what they will be doing next in terms of uh, signing up with their speaker agency. Well, indeed. I mean, this is a. We we were obviously talking a lot about this uh, when Harry did the speech um, with J.P. Morgan, and that was caused quite a, a, a hullabaloo because people were thinking, "Gosh, they haven't wasted any time whatsoever flying by private jet to Miami, giving a talk." Um, you know, talking very, very candidly about um, his the way that he'd been in uh, therapy for the last three years, talking about his mother, and, and obviously that is something that Harry feels comfortable about doing, mental health, that sort of thing. Then um, I revealed a story about then he was talking to Goldman Sachs, or certainly his his team were talking to Goldman Sachs, and and there was tentative steps about forging some sort of partnership with his charity, or you know reading between the lines, once you start doing one or two jobs and you've worked for one investment bank, I, I, I don't think it's a huge leap to say that he may have been invited to do speeches for that, for said investment bank. Now, this um, agency, remind me of the name, is it the Harry Walker? Is it Harry Walker agency? Well, it's the same one as the Obamas, which is... Um, uh, yeah, okay, so it's, it's, it's the agency which are... Um, the Clintons and the Obamas are signed up to. Now, the Obamas and the Clintons have been earning crazy sums for speeches, up to sort of £300,000 per speech. And they've made no secret of, of doing that And after they've left office. And this is obviously the, uh, the, the, the circles that Harry and Meghan are, are, are in. It is the, the Harry Walker Agency. Now, the, the Harry Walker Agency specialises in getting you know, global stars um, to speak on on huge platforms, whether it is it, whether it is to sort of big companies like Microsoft or Facebook or big conferences. 
Um, and so that is, you know, a, a sign of things to come. And, and I definitely do think we're uh, we're in for some treats because they're they're gonna well they're gonna have, one have to earn a lot of money to um, supplement this lifestyle that they're living. They can't live in Tyler Perry's eighteen million pound uh, mansion forever, and they can't um, pay for their own security forever. Well, certainly after Prince Charles pulls the plug next year, and that's costing a whopping sort of seven thousand pounds a day. So they're gonna have to earn a lot of money. So. Um, I, I, again, the, the big bucks are going to be rolling in, I'm sure. And lawyers aren't cheap either. So, you know. <laughs> lawyers are not cheap, no. So, anyway, so that is a, a, a big old Harry and Meghan update. It's been, a, it's been a little while since we've talked about them in quite so much detail. Um, before we move on to the interview with Nigel Corson, is there any, are there any of the events for the other royals over the last week that have really stood out for you or, or tickled you, Russell? Oh, and I liked seeing Charles actually, and I, I and I uh, he was in Gloucestershire, which is obviously where Highgrove is, and he was visiting a farm, uh, and he saw a load of, a load of pigs. I did get away with their very cheeky intro. He was not hogging the limelight, which I was very pleased. <laughs> I mean, it's we might tragic, need to get Daniel to get out his wah 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 music. I know it's one. absolutely tragic to be honest with you, but um, but I do I do love. Something I do love of seeing Charles out on jobs is when he's doing the hands clasped together and the namaste greeting, which I have adopted throughout the coronavirus crisis to greet friends and family because I think it is rather, rather lovely. Um, and so he was he was doing that uh, yesterday. Today, he's back in London. Well, day we're going to get this out on Thursday, aren't we? So we're not even in the time continuum of the future. We are, we are Thursday. And he is this very minute. He is at a the Transport for London uh, headquarters, and he's meeting loads of staff there, loads of bus drivers. And and the reason why this is quite important is because more than forty um, Transport for London workers have, has unfortunately and tragically died due to the coronavirus crisis uh, because of obviously their their close. Um, working in close quarters with with the general public, and 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 this has become you know a huge huge story here in the UK, and and I think that it's right that Charles is is going to a public engagement in like where they're back in London. That is a real big moment for for the monarchy to be back doing these engagements in the capital, um, and, and certainly he'll be moving back to Clarence House, one would assume, and and to pay tribute for all the um, these servicemen and women who have who have essentially unfortunately and tragically paid with their lives with this virus. Because it, it has been interesting the way um, different important bits of of our society have become recognised as key workers or frontline workers. You know, we, there's obviously regular praise for the NHS and all the people working to care, but then there's also the people who have carried on working to keep the country functioning through it all. So the transport workers who have in some cases, you know, been, in, been enabling the doctors and the nurses to get to and from work or the supermarket workers to get to and from work so people can can still get fed and the people that work in 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 food shops to make sure you know absolutely people can still, still keep going so the, well it's the, not the bankers is it it's the, you know the real key workers are your delivery drivers your shop workers you know your nhs your uber drivers who are helping people get around the city as well and certainly when you read stories like this of um, you know brave men and women who have gone to to work every day to just do their job and 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 they've caught this this awful disease and and and, and unfortunately uh, died, it really hits home about you know what t- what sort of time we're living in and uh, and I think it's a it's a really good thing that Charles has gone there uh, with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, today and paid tribute on behalf of the royal family and the nation to um, to their service. And the and William, William and Kate have promised to visit frontline workers in Canada once it's all over in the Canada Canada Day call. So belated happy Canada Day call. Happy Canada Day call. That's not it. Happy Canada Day to our Canadian listeners. listeners. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was Wait. nice actually. That was you know part of uh, they did it. To, you know, a few days beforehand, but it was released yesterday for Canada Day, and um, you know William and Kate were speaking again to frontline workers and, and trying to understand a little bit about uh, the pressures um, under their health service and how they had coped. Certainly, we've seen them 
speaking to, to health workers all over the country in the UK, but um, extending that into the Commonwealth, um, uh, which we obviously seen Kate and, and several members of the Royal Family doing on International Nurses Day, but to, but to, to, to speak to doctors and nurses in Canada as well on their uh, on Canada Day was um, was a top job and. They've promised to go, so I might get a trip to Canada, which I would be very much looking forward to. Because you went before with Ian Vogler, didn't you? you had a good no, time. I didn't. That was before my time. Oh. So, we say hello for doing Ian Vogler, because I, I have been speaking to Vogler every now and then, but I haven't seen him for a long time. I'm missing him. I'm missing him. And we should also say hello to Victoria Murphy, if she is listening, because it would have been her that travelled with uh, Ian Vogler on that trip. So, um, you mentioned Prince Charles has come back to London. The Queen, where is she going to be at Windsor for the foreseeable? What's going to happen with the Buckingham Palace renovations? Is she going to spend the summer in Balmoral? Do we are we any clearer on what's going on? Not any clearer, but there had been some reports that you know things were moving um, at Balmoral. People were getting you know giving the place an old spruce up, uh, ready for her match to uh, to potentially descend on Scottish residents. Now, um, for, for what it's worth. Buckingham Palace has said it's still a pretty fluid situation. They still don't know. I mean, look at what's happening in the UK at the moment where you know, a, a, a whole raft of uh, section of the, the country is coming out of lockdown on Saturday, uh, Super Saturday. Lots of people will be in the pub. But unfortunately for certain areas, i.e. Leicester, and it looks like there is maybe up to 10 other cities um, are in danger of these sort of local lockdowns. So I think... Uh, the royal family, certainly, certainly uh, the, anyone who's dealing with the Queen's diary, will be looking at how this plays out, what the sort of health implications are, um, and and she and she obviously wouldn't want to give off the wrong message as well. So if if it does become an issue of people travelling around the country to second homes, and you know Wales isn't even opening up uh, their borders until potentially next week, still no decision has been made, but they're, they're potentially going to do it next week. Uh, so to go to Scotland whilst they still have certain restrictions in place may have um, some bearing on the on the Queen's plans. But I, I think, you know, should I sit with an account? I think she'll go. Um, I think she'll. I think she'll want to go. And I think that they've been in Windsor Castle for for quite a long time. And I, and, and there were some further reports on the weekend that the, the building works have been delayed at Buckingham Palace because of the coronavirus crisis. Obviously, um, but if you've ever had builders in your house, you'll know. They always go over uh, time and probably budget. So I think we may even see her go back to, to Windsor Castle for a time after Balmoral. I think a lot of things are up in the air. Indeed. And um, one other thing that isn't happening, which normally would be, would be Wimbledon. So tennis tennis folks uh, are missing out. But I'm just going to give a shout out to a Twitter account that um, I follow, Katie's Royal Love, who has been picking outfits that Kate could have worn had she gone to Wimbledon. And I have to say, they're very stylish and very nice. And there's a nice message from the Duchess of Cambridge to Wimbledon fans as well to start the week. So that is all rather lovely. Um, okay. So this is an interview uh, now so I, first of all actually I'm going to say thank you to Russell for joining us this <laughs> thank week you. for part thank one you. of the podcast and we'll be back again next week next but week part two of the show is an interview I did a couple of weeks ago now with Nigel Cawthorn the, in, the author of Prince Andrew Epstein and the Palace. So Nigel's a prolific writer. He's written an awful lot of books, including various royal ones. But this one obviously looks at the difficulties of Prince Andrew's relationship with the um, the uh, sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, who took his own life last year, and the ongoing investigation. Obviously, Prince Andrew, we have talked about it various occasions on this show, including that uh, disastrous Newsnight interview that the Duke of York gave last November. So it was interesting to hear Nigel giving his personal opinion on that interview and also things further back in the Duke of York's time from, you know, b before I was born even, when he was a bit of a heartthrob and how he has ended up now in you know as persona non grata essentially and out of out of the limelight out of public view and with no real way back into public life so here is that interview i hope you enjoy it 
it was great to get Nigel's view on his opinion on that infamous Newsnight interview here about the background that led up to it and what has unfolded since as a different perspective on an issue that as you know we have talked about on various occasions within the limitations of what we are allowed to while there is an ongoing investigation and uh, legal the different legal rules in the UK and America and so on. The audio on this episode isn't as good as sometimes so apologies for that if you are people who who listen in particular scenarios and sometimes find the audio a little bit tricky, then this episode may not be for you. But we hope you enjoy the show if you are someone who would like to dig a little bit further into the background of Prince Andrew. Here's our conversation. So we're very delighted to welcome to the show today Nigel Corson, author of a new book about Prince Andrew called Prince Andrew Epstein and the Palace, published by Gibson Square Media. It is being published today, the day we're recording, so it's June the 11th. So Nigel, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Um, watching Prince Andrew over the last six months, it has been tricky I think for the royal family and for everybody who who follows them when you saw that Newsnight interview I mean it's seven months ago I think now what was your what was your immediate reaction to that because while things had been swirling before that really does feel like it was the catalyst that sent his public life careering down a hill yes indeed as people said at the time it was a bit of a car crash just didn't really seem uh, ready for what he was being asked. Um, uh, and he looked uh, disingenuous, to uh, say the least. And then when we saw afterwards uh, Virginia Bouffre being uh, interviewed and, and making the allegations that she did, it's pretty difficult, it's pretty easy to see who's telling the truth. Obviously, Prince Andrew continues to deny any any wrongdoing and uh, and disputes what she says. Um, and obviously, it's all kicked off again recently with, you know, his his promise to help with the investigation, and then the Americans saying that he's he's not being helpful. But certainly, it's been it remains an an ongoing problem for the palace. I mean, how how damaging do you think the last few months have been? I don't think the, 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 the last few months have been particularly damaging because he stayed out of the way. But I think the next few months are going to be pretty damaging because um, the FBI are known to be a pretty dogged organisation. Um, they want to speak to him. Um, uh, although he initially said that he would co- cooperate after the interview, the, the statement earlier this week came from his lawyers, not from him. So he's, he's, he's hiding behind. Uh, the barristers, uh, they said that he had offered, they had offered to, for him to cooperate um, three times with, to, to uh, the Department of Justice in the US. Yes, but what does cooperation mean? Uh, you know, I'll give you five minutes on the phone after the, I'll get back from the pub. Is cooperation, uh, if he really wanted to cooperate, he could get on plane and fly to New York or um, the, the Black Lives uh, 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 matter people managed to find their way to the American embassy, the new American embassy on the South Bank there, um, where there's an FBI office, and I'm sure uh, Prince Andrew's chauffeur could find his way down there too. Prince Andrew has always had a kind of your, your book covers a, a, his whole life, really, I guess, and how he has evolved as a person, his place in the royal family, um, his, his highs and his lows, and he's he's an interest i think he's probably always been an interesting character being the second son or being the second son of a monarch it's and you know going back in in the day in jane austen and all of all of those kind of books it's sometimes an awkward place to be and people can turn out very very differently because you don't have that clear sense of purpose and knowing what your destiny is if, as if you are Prince Charles when you know you're going to be king one day. And mm-hmm. you know, I think it's something that we've probably seen again 
in Prince Harry. He's been trying to work out what his place is in the world. They've gone very different directions in it and seem to be very different um, characters. But just, you know, reading some of the extracts um, from your book in an article you wrote recently, just the, the idea of when he, he went to Montreal for the 1976 Olympics and you've got, uh, you've got headlines calling him this, this six foot of sex appeal. And, you know, he was a, he was a sort of a playboy prince back in the day in a, in a good in a good pin-up way i guess mm-hmm. yes I, I you're right being the second son of the monarchy is obviously a poison chalice that, that you don't have any clearly defined role um and you do attract a lot of publicity well obviously it's good and bad because you do you do get bombarded by offers from attractive young women um and uh, i think you probably have business opportunities that that, that uh, you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, but I always think too that that you know if, if you're born and brought up behind the palace walls uh, and people are bowing and scraping to you from the time you're four years old, you must get a very distorted picture of of the, of the world. And you can see in that that interview that he really doesn't know. Um, what the rest of us are thinking and how we will take those sort of comments and that sort of attitude. I think it's interesting as well because you get a feeling that other members of the royal family maybe try a little bit harder to recognise that actually they do have this privileged position and other people, their lives are a bit different and they need to be aware of that difference. But whereas Prince Andrew, you know, the, sort of the anecdote about Coronation Street, which I'm sure you'll be able to tell better than me, you know, he just doesn't seem to be as kind of aware. He's just taking it, taking his position and that's great and that's me and never mind the rest of them. It's kind of the impression that I was getting from a lot of the stories that people who had come across him were telling. Well, indeed. I mean, the, the, the Queen, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, they, they have, are aware of a responsibility they have, which, which does obviously uh, um, modify their behaviour. They, they can't uh, behave like he does, but he doesn't have any responsibilities. Um, he, he just gets money for nothing, um, uh, which I wonder, I, I wonder whether that's going to continue because when the Suffolkses uh, quit royal duties, uh, they dumped their HRHs and, and no longer took uh, money from the privy purse. Well, is this, as, as now he's retired from public duties, is he going to get rid of the title and, 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 and um, not take the money as well? Or be that the money won't be given to him? Let's, let's see how that plays out. Well, yeah, I think the different Harry and Meghan have some have some good pulling power and credibility, and everybody will be clamouring to sign them up and use them for for forces for good. Whereas Andrew is now kind of a toxic a, a toxic prospect until and until and unless he can deal with these allegations and clear his name and put them behind him. The um, the the anecdote that I was referring to around um, around Coronation Street, obviously a huge soap in the uk for our um for our foreign listeners which is you know is is the goings on of people based up in sort of in the north and go down the rovers return for a pint and it's it is part of the fabric of of british life it's you know one of those kind of touchstone things and he was very much um what's the word disparaging i think probably about the sort of awfulness i don't know was it the awfulness of their lives or the awfulness of the tv show or the awfulness of these people Yes, the common people, uh, and uh, his father pointed out that his, his life rather depended on the, the support of these common people. So yeah, that's the kind of awareness that is, is sadly... There's no Jarvis Cocker. Ah, <laughs> oh, classic song from my 1990s uh, teenager, and absolutely love that one. Um, we talked, mentioned a bit before about the sort of Sex, six foot of sex appeal, which is still um, making me sort of laugh and feel quite uh, cringy <laughs> at the same time. Um, okay. He did eventually get married to um, Sarah Ferguson. I think he'd had some fairly sort of uh, not been short of female company 
previous to that and then and and since their since their divorce either but certainly there remains an ongoing fascination i think with his relationship with sarah ferguson and the fact that they continue to to share a home and in fact you know during lockdown we've kind of seen pictures of them doing volunteering and things together and there's a bit of me that thinks he might his main job at the moment might just be taking pictures of sarah ferguson for her social media accounts given that she's putting them out most days but you know their their relationship and what that is is like what can you sort of tell us about about that at all well as you're right she's given him remarkable support over the years and uh, he helped um, get money out of Epstein to kind of bail her out with, with her debts. So, you know, they're, they're kind of close in that way. And of course, she was one of the people who advised him to do that interview um, when everybody else was saying, don't go near it. Uh, so maybe she's not the best advisor to have. Possibly not. I think one thing everyone can definitely agree on that his decision to do that Newsnight interview was very, very foolhardy and has um, has caused enormous, even more problems than were there already. So mm. fundamentally, the issue is not so much the interview, but the friendship that preceded it with Epstein. How taking us back to the beginning of that, because I think for a lot of us, it's we've become aware of it maybe in the last year or so uh, how big an issue and kind of a scandal it is largely once um jeffrey epstein took his own life it, it became even more of a um more prominent but how did how did they how did they first cross paths and how did that sort of that friendship end up becoming where we are today well it's largely through Ghislaine uh, maxwell it, uh, he had known her since since university, um, and she became Epstein's girlfriend, stroke procurer. Um, so she's really the the, the centre of all this, from the allegations that, that, that we've had and, and the various um, court, court cases that she's been involved in over over this. Um, so it's kind of impossible to imagine in those situations uh, that he didn't know what Epstein was up to. Everybody who went to Epstein's houses in, in, in New York, uh, uh, Florida and the Virgin Islands said it was plain what he was up to. So how um, Prince Andrew can claim that he didn't know what Epstein was doing is it, 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 staggering. I must just add that Ghislaine Maxwell, for her part, has always denied any allegation that she facilitated or participated in Epstein's crimes. Although, although there is so much lack of self-awareness and obsession with himself that maybe that comes through in a lot of the other stories, that maybe that that would be one avenue that would give some kind of plausibility. Um, and in terms of, um, did you get any sense of the American side of how they are are seeing this situation at the moment, and um, the the goings on over there in relation to trying to move the investigation forward? Well, once these things are in the, the hands of the Department of Justice and the FBI, um, there's really kind of no way back. <laughs> Is that that um, the FBI are notoriously dogged, uh, and uh, they will run from their inception for many many years by the guy who who was an anglophobe, um, so they had the tradition of kind of hating us. Um, I, and I don't see how from their side that they they can now they've made a formal request, well they can they can drop it, um, and. How is he to respond to this? If he had trouble with Emily Maitland, can you imagine how he's going to deal with a handful of FBI agents interrogating him? <laughs> That's going to be more than a car crash. And but how can but how can he not? That is that is the problem and. I guess that there's always been this feeling that he might be the Queen's favourite son 
um, mm. I'm not I'm, I'm not entirely sure where that's where that sort of theory initiated but certainly he well if you can get away with putting your itching powder in your mum's bed and not getting grounded for months and your mum is the queen then you've clearly yeah. managed managed to get a little bit of uh... I, I, love, I love the way she calls him into the palace and, and over a cup of afternoon tea she, she pins another couple of medals on him um, it's all totally cozy isn't it so yeah totally. would, you like, would you like another title <laughs> totally different world but mm. um, it, it it sounds like he was kind of a the, the mysterious child that was always getting away with it at, at home, you know, climbing onto the roof to turn the TV aerial so that the Queen wouldn't be able to watch the racing. I mean, that sounds like a fine, fairly uh, yeah, send, <laughs> send them to the tower offence. And um, mm. and the Queen saying, he's not always a little ray of sunshine about the home of a, a sort of <laughs> mischievous, a mysterious child was quite sweet. But, um, mm. and it sounds like... Even Prince Philip called him the boss. Oh wow! If Prince Philip calls him the boss, then you know there's uh, he, Prince Philip does always seem to be very much the uh, the iron the iron ruler when required in the uh, in the family. Although you you wrote a book about the, the funnier side of Prince Philip, yes, 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 yes. They I mean they do show uh, certain characteristics. They can both give offence, father and son, and. Prince Andrew, when he was a working royal, it mm. sounds like he wasn't necessarily always the best weapon to deploy at particular situations because he, again, he would engage his mouth before he engaged his brain in any way. Yes, I mean, he's run into trouble recently over uh, his charity. Um, but when he was... Um, uh, the trade envoy of uh, the UK. Yes, the, the the foreign office had a lot of tr trouble with him because he would never kind of follow the itinerary. Uh, he would never take a scheduled flight anywhere. It would always have to be a, a, a private jet. So he, he spent an awful lot of taxpayers' money. And it was not just him. He, he even had a guy carrying around an extra large ironing board to have iron his trousers for him. So <laughs> it, it, it's a very different world. And you'd, you'd hope that the least that you could expect, if you were the queen, when you send your son to to do a duty, is that he not embarrass her or, or be insensitive when something terrible is going on. The, the, the story about Lockerbie, which was not one that I'd been aware of, obviously the terrible mm. crash when the Pan Am flight um, crashed in um, Lockerbie, in, near Lockerbie. And obviously mm. that's... Onto Lockerbie. It hit Lockerbie. So there are a lot of people killed on the ground. Um, and but he he didn't have any kind of empathy really for the people who were who were there and experiencing what that was like to have a, a plane land on their village. Yes, he said it was it was bound to happen sooner or later, and, and they should feel sorry for the Americans who were on board the, the flight who almost also died. As he said. So yeah, you can understand the Queen saying, "I wish, I wish that I had gone." And I think people who watch watch the Crown and have seen the recent series where there was the Aberfan disaster, which would have been, a, you know, new knowledge to a lot of people. I think that was a particularly emotive episode that struck a lot of nerves and was one where where there was kind of the right kind of emotion and uh, empathy that was mm. shown. Um, Prince Andrew's military career. So I was, um, I'm an, I'm a 1980s baby. So he was, you know, he was in the, he was in the military when I was growing up. So I was aware, you know, I was aware that it happened, but I wasn't experiencing it at the time. Although I do remember, um, do remember watching the wedding of Andrew and Fergie and the big dresses, which is always fun. But um, in terms of his military career, that seems, you know, that that's kind of always been the thing that's been he's been able to fall back on as saying, you know, I did this and I'm, you know, I'm not entirely a bad person. Yes, 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 yes. I must how give him credit for that, yes. He discharged himself well. And how, so how do you see his sort of military time and the impression that he made when he was, um, when he was in that role? Well, again, his, his colleagues found him uh, rather arrogant but he did go to the, the Falklands War, did put his, his life on the line, so one must give him credit for that. 
again, one of the things that I find mysterious um, is that, that uh, even when he retired from active duty, he goes on getting um, uh, promotions. He's a vice admiral now. <laughs> I don't know when he was last on the ship, but uh, I guess when you're in the royal family, you keep on getting more and more titles and more and more uniforms to wear and more and more medals. So very puzzling to us common people. That's true. Very true. But his, I, I quite enjoyed hearing that, you know, when he, he was a, the military can put people in their place quite nicely or at least attempt to so arriving for his his first tour on the aircraft carrier and introducing himself to the captain and saying hi i'm prince andrew but you can call me andrew and the captain managing to reply you can call me sir <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. but the impression that i was getting was very much that he was still kind of using his difference during his time in the military whereas prince harry found it a place where he could be one of the boys and yeah. lose himself in it is that do you think that's fair that's true i mean a lot of people because because his older brother being in the navy as well they, they compared him to charles and, and found charles a, a much humbler character to, to get on with and more of one, one of the boys and so Andrew, Andrew in general, what is the, I guess, what is the, the impression that people who have known him tend to give or people that you've spoken to in the, in the writing of your book that have shared their experiences of working or dealing with him? Well, as I say, he's just found to be um, very arrogant um, and, and, as you say, insensitive. And other were there people that shared some of his redeeming features in terms of? Because <laughs> surely no person is all bad. And no, no, but I, again, one kind of almost sympathises with him that, that that if you're shoved in that role, how are you going to turn out? Um, and I haven't had that many privileges, but I'm sure I can behave as badly as the rest of them. And in terms of um, the the book that you have written, if you could just sort of tell our listeners a little bit about what the sort of the swathe of of what it covers is, so that they know what to expect if they're going to go uh, order it or find find it in a bookshop when the bookshops are reopening. Okay. Well, it, it, obviously, we, we we start with the Epstein affair is is knowledge. Uh, about that and then I put it in context we go back and, and, and look at his, his life and the scrapes he's got him into uh, before um, and and then go into more detail about the the precise allegations that that are made uh, against him and um, the legal position and also uh, which I think is very important to, to that needs more investigation in, in, in fact are these rather dubious business dealings, um, especially with, with uh, despots from, from uh, Central Asia? Um, and I, I, again, we know that that, that uh, Epstein was was um, bailing out Fergie. Did it, did he have business dealings with with uh, Andrew as well? So there remain various questions that will continue to be asked over the coming weeks. It's, you wrote about um, Princess Diana back in a few years ago. Um, you've written the book about Prince Philip as well. In terms of the royal family and their position today, because you know, we, talk, we talk about various things on the show. We talk about the good work that is going on. We talk about the sort of the family issues and the, the, the sort of life changes that Harry and Meghan are, are throwing out, you know, they're, they're setting out on their own and the changes mm. that that brings. But that is, that's kind of like normal, normal affairs and, and change. And then the Prince Andrew issue is kind of the underlying problem that, that won't go away. How do you 
see the royal family's situation at the moment in 2020 kind of overall as an overall picture well obviously no one can fault the queen that she's done a magnificent um, job and hold the whole thing together and, and uh, everyone in the world has great respect for her um, even uh, if they don't believe in the monarchy you've got to admire her um, when she dies which she surely will within the next 20 years I don't know how she has jobs made of steel but, but sometimes you know she's going to go rusty at some point and um, then what happens because uh, as, as no, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but but um, Tony Benn used to say this that since the uh, Glorious Revolution, 1688, uh, the the new monarch has to be invited to take the throne by the Privy Council, and it has to be a unanimous vote of the Privy Council. Now, one of the members of the Privy Council now is Jeremy Corbyn, who's essentially Tony Benn's vicar on earth. And he said that, that you know he wouldn't uh, invite Prince Charles to take the throne, and he wouldn't invite anyone to take the throne. So that we would then have a constitutional crisis. Um, would people wouldn't go to build a barricade in the street for Prince Charles, would they? So what happens then? Uh, there'd have to be some sort of constitutional convention, and we figure out whether we go on with this, whether we, we become a republic, what we do. So it's all up in the air. And well, obviously, obviously, the Prince Andrew situation isn't particularly open. Well, let's hope if it does end up in some kind of a constitutional crisis at some stage, we're not trying to figure it all out by Zoom calls, because I think that will make the whole <laughs> situation Indeed. just a little bit harder. Just a little <laughs> bit harder. Um, Nigel, thank you ever so much for, um, for joining us on the show today. Is there any particular incident you know from prince andrew's life you know a particular anecdotal situation that you you think is sort of particularly telling and that you'd like to share with people as a last as a last thought well, there's a thing to throw at me um <laughs> you see the, the problem with these interviews is that people always think oh he's written the book so he must know everything is in the book but since I, I wrote that book i think i've written four or five other books so oh, goodness. to remember everything uh, um, off the top of my head. In fairness, when I come out of recording an episode of Pod Save the Queen, I can't off quite often the next day can't remember half of what we've talked about and have to refresh my memory as well. So, well, Nigel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we wish you all the very best with the book, this one, and all of the very many others in your prolific prolific writing okay. time thousands and thousands of words um listeners if you would like to get the book it's by nigel cawthorne c-a-w-t-h-o-r-n-e um and the title is prince andrew epstein and the palace so nigel thank you very much best wishes to okay. you in lockdown do take care and thanks for joining thanks, us on the show Lord save the queen